And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. There are all kinds of routes to the United States Senate, but it's fair to say that Al Franken's may be one of the most unusual. He was a national celebrity as a comedian and a writer on Saturday Night Live for years, had his own show on Air America, uh, but now is, is a uh, senator from Minnesota uh, in his second term and an impactful leader on issues like uh, mental health reform and health care and generally and uh, uh, worker training and a whole array of, of things. And uh, also just a thoughtful uh, commentator on uh, where we are as a country. Uh, I sat down with him in Washington the other day uh, to talk about the recent vote on guns, the election, and his life and career. So, Al Franken, you, uh, like myself, come from an immigrant family, uh, which probably crossed your mind, your grandparents, I'm talking about. Yeah, I mean, everyone, except for... Not everyone. Well, I'm on Indian Affairs, and they're the only ones who did come from immigrant families. Exactly, exactly. But yes, my... But it uh, seems like a fairly typical... I mean, I'm a New Yorker, my, my mother's... Parents came from Russia. My father's my father came from Ukraine. Right. So yeah, um, we're Ashkenazi. Yes. Yes. We uh, Russia on my uh, mom's side, German on my dad's side. My grandmother uh, Clara uh, wore black to um, her son's wedding because he's a, he was a German Jew marrying a Russian Jew. Uh huh. She, really she didn't, didn't want those mixed marriages. She didn't. She didn't approve. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And were, was that were, were those cultural things big when you you I know you were in New York for four years and then yeah and then I moved I moved to Minnesota when I was four and then grew up in Minnesota but being Jewish was is a big deal <laughs> yeah and uh, it really uh, in a couple ways one uh, I, my dad was my dad was a Jacob Javits style. Republican, yes. and he had never the voted great uh, moderate Republican senator from yeah. New York forever. Yeah, yeah. A really a liberal in yeah. a way. And, yeah, yeah. And and uh, uh, so my dad um, never voted for Roosevelt. My dad was forty three. He was born nineteen oh eight, and um, he voted Republican until nineteen sixty four, and that's when I was thirteen. And the civil rights demonstrations were a big deal uh, in my mm-hmm. sort of political education because justice was a big basic tenant in, in from um, also in Judaism. Uh, right. And uh, so we would watch, my parents had us watch uh, the, t- the news uh, during dinner. So we'd eat on tray tables and the TV, you know, in the den. Mm-hmm. And watch the news, and my dad, when those demonstrations came on, on uh, t- the TV with southern cops or sheriffs turning on fa- fire hoses or billy clubs or dogs on demonstrators, my dad would go, "No Jew can be for that. Yeah. No Jew can be for that." You know, it's interesting because back then the alliance between the Jewish community and the black community was really, really strong. I mean, the Jewish community. Very strong, yeah. In terms of legal support and financial support, yeah. and uh, was was right there. I uh, think there was, you know, uh, the Holocaust was sort of drummed into our heads, and I think that there was an identification with uh, blacks, particularly in the South. But 
And so I think that was a natural sort of alliance that got has gotten. Why was he a Republican straight. earlier? Did he ex- did he say? I think that it's because he was a New Yorker, and I think he thought Tammany so was corrupt. Of, oh, I see. Yeah. yeah. Well, I must he tell you, when goo-goo. I was ten years old, I worked for John Lindsay. Uh-huh. For that well, same there, reason, see? yes. Yep. New yep. York has the, had this liberal Republican tradition, Rockefeller, now, Javits. Now, when you were 10, did you do Lindsay's ads? I was his strategist. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and it was, you know, until Obama, it was probably my greatest win. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, uh, but uh, and then you moved to Minnesota four. when you were when you're four. Suburban Minnesota. No, well, actually, at first it was a small town in southern Minnesota. The, here's the deal. My dad... Um, his father died when he was 16. So my dad went to work and didn't graduate high school. So he never really had a career as such. And um, my other grandfather on my mom's side had a quilting factory. Quilting is the fabric that uses liners for winter coats and stuff like that. So he, uh, he wanted to open a factory in the Midwest and sent my father out. And we went to Albert Lee, Minnesota, which is in southern Minnesota, a small, very small city. Uh, and the factory failed after a couple of years. And when I was six, we moved up to uh, St. Louis Park, which is a suburb of Minneapolis. And years later, when I finally was old enough to sort of think about this, I said, Dad, why Albert Lee? And my dad said, well, your grandfather wanted <laughs> to open a factory in the Midwest and the railroad went through Albert Lee. And I said, well, why did the factory fail? And he said, it went through Albert Lee, but it wouldn't stop. <laughs> and my dad was not a good businessman. He was not a good businessman, but he was, very, he was funny, and he was the sweetest guy in the world. Lovely guy. The, um, uh, you, you moved to St. Louis? St. Louis Park. St. Louis Park. St. Louis yeah. Park. So uh, there are other notables. You're one of them. Tom Friedman. Tom Friedman. Uh, the Coen brothers. The Coen brothers. Norm yeah. Ornstein. Yeah. Did you know all those guys? I They're did all not. at different ages than you. Yeah. I mean, uh, Norm's a couple years older than me. I think uh, uh, Tom is like a year or two younger than me. Uh, but uh, I didn't know. And I, the Coen brothers are a few years younger than me. So I, I didn't know them at all. Norm, is, you know, Norm went like went to the University of Minnesota when he was 14. <laughs> I mean, Norm got like, uh, you know, it was crazy brilliant. And uh, uh, he's probably the smartest of all of us. And uh, but yeah. And you started doing comedy in, in high school? Yeah. I mean, I started doing uh, I. I went to I, I did it with a partner Tom Davis yeah, Franklin sure. and Davis yes. were part of SNL and so we started working together in high school and there was a club uh, well it was a uh, like a review theater called Dudley Riggs Brave New Workshop and it was like very much like Second City uh, based on the same improv techniques that really was the basis of all almost all of the Saturday Night Live cast that came mm-hmm. uh, and and we in high school. Um, kind of, uh, we, we started going to the improv sessions to watch them. And then, uh, the proprietor, uh, Dudley asked us to, you know, if we wanted to get up and see how we, you know, would do. And we did that on a open night mic or it was, there was no open. microphone. Yeah. So it was a little theater and we were good. And we started doing like shows there. What, what, drew, what, what drew you to that? I'm, I'm interested in this because you know, I had John Stewart on a few weeks ago yeah. uh, on on the podcast, and he reinforced what I have learned in my interaction with comedians. That comedians are very serious 
about yes. their comedy. <laughs> very, and, and, sure, and, it's, a, it's a job, it's a profession, it's, a, it's, a, a, it's not an art so much, it's a craft. And what, what, but what draws you to it? Because like for a lot of guys, it seems, and some gals, it seems like uh, it's like armor. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. There's that. There's the um, you know if you're shy like what happened in your life that warped what, you in this way? That's what I'm asking you. You know, um, I think that uh, it, it, it's partly the Jew thing. Actually, there's a kind of you know, did you know that John Stewart is Jewish? I heard that. Yeah, and um, my dad loved comedy. Mm-hmm. He loved to laugh. And uh, so we, and he especially loved comedians like uh, Jackie Vernon and Buddy Hackett. Buddy Hackett was his favorite. <laughs> yeah. And um, so, you know, I think one of the reasons I became a comedian is that one of the best experiences I ever had in my life is just watching comedy with my dad and laughing. And um, could you make him laugh? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he could make me laugh story I've told sometimes is when he died, when he was dying, I went home to, uh, to, hop, to, to Minneapolis and uh, dad, he had lung cancer. He, he inhaled a pipe his entire adult life. <laughs> and he was, you know, he was uh, How old 85. Was he? So Pretty and good. he had a good life. And he was, Maybe inhaling uh, a pipe is actually good for you. I think it cut his life short because he... he I think he has longevity, um, except for his father. Mm-hmm. His father died of, of tuberculosis. Uh, but so dad is, you know, at home getting hospice care. And he's been there about, you know, I've been home about three weeks. And the rabbi calls up, a young, the young rabbi from Temple Israel, and says, can I, I answer the phone. Can I come over and talk to your dad? And I went, I thought about it, and I said, you know, rabbi, um, Dad knows he's dying. <laughs> we know he's dying. He knows that we know he's dying, but he's never mentioned it. And I don't want him to have to talk about it unless he brings it up. And you're coming over, that would pretty much, you know, okay. So the rabbi goes, okay. So That's next, a sign, you know, when the rabbi shows yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. So a, the next day yeah. he calls up and he said, could I come over and comfort your mom? And I went, oh, please. You know, <laughs> she's a mess. And so he comes over and we're in the living room with him. And I can't remember what he said until, and I don't know how long he was there until he said, would it be okay if I went in and talked to your dad? And I thought to myself, aha, that's why he said he wanted to come over and comfort mom so he could get to dad. The rabbi knows under the tent thing. And then I just went like, oh, wait a minute. You know, that's ridiculous. And I was really messed up myself. So I said, okay, let me talk to my dad. So I will go down the hall and my dad is... You know, he's actually, I think, six days. He died six days later. And as weak as can be, skeletal, just dying. And so I say to my dad, uh, Dad, uh, Rabbi Black is here. And he's wondering if he could come in and talk to you. And my dad says, well. So even your rabbi was black. That's, now I. The, the no, no, whole, no, no, no. I don't say that. Go ahead. You know, I was telling a story. I'm sorry. No, it's poignant, and I'm sorry. Yeah. I didn't mean to interrupt. Okay, but you can I cut did that interrupt. out. You can cut the interrupting Yes, out. of course. <laughs> anyway, you don't have to. So I go in there. Rabbi Black wants to talk to you, and he says, uh, 
well, I don't really know him because he was the he was the young rabbi there. And I said, but then he said, but if he feels it'll do him some good. <laughs> And I laughed. I laughed really hard. And he smiled. And that was the biggest gift in our house that you could give someone was laughing at their joke. Yeah. So, you know, so I, I went and got Rabbi Black and Rabbi Black talked to him. A few years later, uh, I, I was doing my radio show on Air America and I mm -hmm. went to Albuquerque where Rabbi Black now had his own congregation and we, you know, he was in the green room before the the show, and I said, "What? You know, I never asked you what was it like when you came in and talked to my dad." And he said, "Your dad just tried to make me feel as comfortable as possible." Uh huh. And so that was my dad. I mean, my dad was this really funny, incredibly sweet, very smart, lovely guy who never had much of a career, but was a happy, happy guy. Yeah, which is a gift. It is. It's amazing, yeah. and yeah. and so, you know that. And and I was I was um, you know I did comedy from second. My first show I wrote was in second grade. Um, uh, we uh, uh, second it was Mrs. Morrison's class, and we came the boys came back from recess uh, on the playground, and she said the the girls have a have a surprise for you. We went down to the audio visual room, and the girls had did a show for us and it was really corny it was like i'm a little teapot literally i'm yeah. a little teapot so i got the boys together and i said let's do a show let's make fun of their show <laughs> so <laughs> so we got together and i wrote a show and we and a couple days later we said to mrs morrison we have a surprise for you and the girls we have a show and we did a, a scathing parody of their show and um, Mrs. Morrison was very, some of the girls cried. And Mrs. Morrison was a very good teacher. And she said, let's, let's have Alan write a show for, that the boys and girls can do together. And we did a show. And the only thing I remember about the show is I wrote a, a, a sketch where the idea was anachronisms. And I didn't know the word for anachronisms. Yeah, I was going to say you are pretty precocious. No, no, I didn't know the word for it. But... It was a Civil War sketch in which uh, the boys were uh, wounded soldiers in a hospital. The girls were nurses, and they hear over the radio that Lincoln's been assassinated. And, of course, there was no radio, yes. and that was the joke. Yes. And it wasn't a great joke, but I was, come on, I was seven. <laughs> <laughs> or eight. You know so, you know, uh, the thing that, uh, there was a, a documentary, I don't know if you saw it, called Comedian... Uh, that, that the Seinfeld, Seinfeld did, did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. about him developing his his act starting after he left the show. starting a fresh and going to these small clubs with yeah. his yellow legal pad and trying stuff out some of which was you know bad yeah so it takes courage to go out there and expose yourself in that way yeah you're you're he burned his act what he did was during when he was doing Seinfeld he'd still go out and perform but he'd perform this act that he had built up over the years and then he did it on Broadway and did it as an HBO special. And that stuff, that was it. That was, he burned that stuff. And then he started, it, the, the film's very interesting. And, yeah, uh, it is. And yeah, it was starting an act. Yeah. And failing. I mean, going out there and having people say, 
That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Yeah, but I, you know, he, it was a film, so he didn't have to, you know, he, he had the courage to go and bomb at small clubs, but, right. but the, the film itself was put together in a way that. Right, right. But I'm sure really there was what I'm asking is, is stuff. <laughs> I mean, I'm impressed by what it takes to go out there and do that. Well, it, uh, it does. It, but most comedians, Dana Carvey once said to me, uh, there's no reason to be a comedian unless you absolutely have to be. And what he meant by that, he didn't mean that you can't do anything else. Right. He meant that like a musician has to be a musician or like, you know, a political consultant has to be a political consultant because it's just a passion. Like yes. No, maybe not. Yes. But, but um, you know, most people that I know that are successful in comedy, there was kind of no question that that's what they were going you to do. You went to Harvard. Did you do comedy there? Uh, yeah, I did. Uh, I, that was, I had a very early career crisis or I'm, I was going to be a scientist of some sort because I was a Sputnik kid. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I was, my brother was in 1957, Sputnik went up and, um, my, uh, parents, uh, were, like all Americans, kind of terrified because the uh, Soviets had nuclear weapons and um, now they were ahead of us in space. And so they marched us into our living room right. in St. Louis Park and sat us down and said, you boys are going to study math and science um, so we can beat the Soviets. Yeah. And I thought that was a lot of pressure to put on a <laughs> six-year-old. But we were obedient sons and we studied math and science and we were very good at it. My brother... Uh, was the first in our family to go to college. And he went to MIT and majored in physics and graduated a degree in physics and became a photographer. Right. And then I tested very well in math and science. And so I got into Harvard and I thought I was going to be a scientist of some sort. And my fr very early in my freshman year, um, and I met Franny. Uh, Your wife. My wife. Uh, like the first week of college at a mixer. <laughs> and... Uh, so she just said, you should go to the counselor's office, and, you know, because you, you know, because I was taking science, science and math, and I, they had me take the Minnesota multiphasic test, and which says, has a list of careers that you're suited for, and um, scientist was dead last, <laughs> and, and they didn't have comedian, but it was camp counselor and jazz <laughs> musician. Uh, and I'd never gone to a sleepaway How many camp. camp counselors does Harvard produce? I don't know. Um, I Seems think like a only, waste, only, uh, I think the closest is like hedge fund managers who own <laughs> a chain of camps, of summer camps or something. That would be the closest. So once you finished school, you went out to Hollywood. Yeah, I went out to Hollywood. And you met up with your... Friend Tom well, yeah, Davis. Tom again. and I, throughout college, I, I, at summers, I would go do uh, gigs in, uh, in, 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 at Dudley's in Minnesota. And then um, at, when I graduated, we all three of us drove out to. Tom came to uh, live with me at, at, uh, at Harvard, and uh, on weekends, we'd go down to the improv. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so then we went to Hollywood and uh, did the comedy store and that kind of stuff. So you were discovered as 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 it happens in by by Lorne Michaels who's starting. He didn't. Well, here's how he discovered us, if you call it that. 
we were doing stand-up in L.A. and uh, as a team, and a William Morris agent came up to us, Herb Carp, and said, "You guys are good. I love your, the stuff you're writing, and I love you guys. But uh, would you consider writing?" And we said, "Of course. You know, we just wanted to make some, you know, some money, money out yeah. of doing what we were doing. We we're getting by, but very, very barely." And so, uh, essentially, we put together a writing package that we thought that for a show that we hoped would, you know, because we weren't right for any of the shows that were on. We weren't right for Carol Burnett because it was a great <laughs> show, but it was just not our generation. We, right. weren't, we weren't joke writers like for, for Carson, for The Tonight Show. So we just put together, and what it had, we had a newscast. We had a, we had com- a commercial parody. We had a, a short film, uh, yeah. and we had a sketch, and uh, it was so, sort of sounds a perfect, like a formula. Yeah, there. it sounded like a, a so someday. I hope uh, <laughs> someone will do it. a show like that. <laughs> but anyway, so we submitted it, and Lorne uh, read it, and it, we were the only writers he had not met. And uh, we think maybe today, still, <laughs> or I do, because Tom's gone, but that you know he might not have hired us if he had met us, but uh, he had met all the other writers and. He hired us and uh, as a team, and we found out on a Friday, and we were supposed to report on Monday in New York, and we were just thrilled. We were so thrilled we had a job. And we were hired as one apprentice. Somehow the Writers Guild allowed them to do that. <laughs> so we were getting $350 a week between the two of us. We were thrilled. Uh-huh. We were thrilled. And that was like a magical time there. I mean, you, you, when you arrived there, it was the first cast. And, and we didn't have the cast yet. Ah. Uh, yeah. I think uh, Danny and Gilda and... Dan Aykroyd and Gilda Radner. Yeah, Dan Aykroyd, Gilda Radner had been cast. And What about uh, Belushi? Belushi hadn't been cast yet. He did, he did the Samurai as his audition. Huh. And... What did you think when these folks rolled in? I mean, what was it like? Well, what was funny about it was is that, you know, I was 24 and Tom was 23. And, you know, about, I don't know, a few weeks in, I just said to Tom, like, you know, this show's going to be a giant hit. And when I look back at that, it's ridiculous for anyone to ever say that about anything. (laughs) Yeah, well, maybe (laughs) not. (laughs) Well, because... What I figured was we, you know, we had Mike O'Donohue there, who was one of the creators of Lampoon, of the Na- National Lampoon. We had uh, just the people around me were, this is the first time that baby boomers were allowed to be on TV. And as far as I could tell, you know, between Gilda and Belushi and Chevy and Lorraine and, and Jane and, and, and Garrett, and it, it just was, I just thought like, and and the writers that we they had, I said this is going to be a hit because no one's been we haven't been allowed to be on TV yet, and we all grew up with TV, and we have a sensibility that no other people that have been on TV and a have. whole bunch of people who out there of your generation who were waiting to waiting for something like this. Probably, I, I guess so. They didn't know they were waiting for it, right. but we, you know, and we were kind of a counterculture yeah. kind of show, I guess. Um, when, when I decided that we weren't a counterculture show anymore was in, um, 88 when, uh, uh, George H.W. Bush 
pick Dan Quayle, and Dan Quayle was asked, who is your favorite musician at uh, Woodstock? And he said, uh, Jimi Hendrix. And I went, <laughs> okay, there's no counterculture anymore. This that's not, there's, it doesn't exist. What, what, was it, what, what was it like back then with all, I mean, you know, they're sort of, I mean, that, that's an extraordinary group. And, yeah, and, it was. And it, was it as crazy as it, it seemed? Well, what do you outside? mean by crazy? Like crazy, <laughs> like crazy creative and crazy, crazy. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, it was. Uh, I want to destroy your career by asking exactly how crazy it was. Well, but. there were, uh, you know, uh, people fell in love, uh, people had sex, mainly sex. <laughs> Uh, people did drugs and, um, you know, we didn't know at that time, but it could kill you and yeah. it killed Belushi and, uh, you know, that, uh, did you see that coming? I did not see him dying coming and that opened everybody's eyes a lot. And, um, you know, when, um, you know, Farley Farley tried very hard. He went in and out of rehab. He was he lived in a halfway house while he did the show hmm. downtown, like a uh, I think it was Hazelden related. And you know, and I used to do, you know, uh, it, my my wife is rec is reco in recovery, a recovering alcoholic, and actually that was a key thing in my campaign is that I was getting smeared so badly in um, by the other side by putting some of the stuff I had written and said during my career <laughs> through a machine called the dehumorizer uh, that uh, Franny during the campaign couldn't take it anymore and she insisted on being uh, doing a commercial about who I was hmm. and so and I wrote a couple of commercial. Uh, com I wrote a couple of uh, films about recovery, about that Stuart Smalley thing, and also a drama called "When a Man Loves a Woman," which I co-wrote mm -hmm. with Ron Bass. And so, um, you know, that opened people's eyes, and so did my own experience, not only with my wife, but but really with my partner, with Tom. And that's how we broke up. Was uh, I did an intervention on him? We did an intervention. Didn't work. Hmm. So I, I've been affected by that, and that's a lot of the work. Some of the work I do in in the Senate is on um, mental health and addiction. Yeah, uh, treatment, and you know, part of that is is carrying over from Paul Wellstone. Yes, and a lot of that is also from my own personal experience and. Some great stuff that people do in Minnesota that I've taken to uh, to, the, to the Senate. But we're still uh, not there uh, in terms of treating mental illness as an illness. I, I talk about this from time to time here, but my dad committed suicide when I was 19. And I didn't talk about it for 30 years because I thought somehow it would besmirch him mm -hmm. to talk about it. And I realized that's why he didn't go get help. Mm -hmm. And he was a mental health professional, but he didn't go get help because he thought it was a the character stigma. defect. It's the stigma. Right. And it's one of the reasons, you know, you have to be very careful. Like during, after Sandy Hook, a lot of my colleagues would say, like, well, it's not just guns. It's also uh, the culture and mental health. And they'd be very proud of themselves because they had they, they checked off the mental health box. I've talked about mental health. And, you know, first of all, if you're only talking about it 
in terms of a deranged person who killed all these people, that doesn't help at all. Because most, <laughs> you know, most right. people have some mental illness um, are not violent at all. In fact, they're more susceptible to violence. And uh, so I was very careful when we had the hearings in Judiciary Committee on Guns to always say not you we we got to be careful about not stigmatizing because yeah, yeah. then people won't go get help and one of the things i was very proud to do in the last uh, k through 12 the bill uh the reform no child left behind was put mental health in schools yeah in. and uh it's funny the school i went to or the this junior achievement event i went to today which was just great and it's 18 teams throughout the country were picked to present their projects and two of them were from the same school in minnesota moundsview i went to their school i went to the moundsview school system to see what they were doing in mental health and what their superintendent had done was really brilliant and what he did was he trained every adult in the school system um from the uh, teachers to the school bus drivers to the lunch ladies to the principal to, to see what it looks like when a kid may have a mental health problem mm. and to then have that adult go to the professional in the school whether it was a, a counselor a social worker or a psychologist and say see that you know talk to this kid and if that professional determined that the kid had a serious mental health problem that they would get him or her access to community mental health services mm. and i had a we had a round table and there was one mom who i just will never forget and she she said you know she was i think 28 or 29 at the time and she had an eight-year-old son and a five-year-old daughter and she's a single mom and her her son had been out of control and they figured out that he had something so they diagnosed him he had adhd and asperger's hmm. and they treated it and it turned him around he wasn't out of control at all and her life had been out of control and she yes. turned to me and she said you know, now he's doing well in school. She said, now I am bulletproof. Mm -hmm. I can do anything. Mm -hmm. And I just went, okay, let's do that. Let's take that to Washington. Yes. And that's the best part of being a senator is that you see what people are doing in your state and you take it. And we got it into this last bill or law. When did you, the fact that some of your old bits were used against you in, yeah. uh, in your campaign speaks to the fact that you weren't planning to run for the United States Senate <laughs> all your life. Yeah, uh, I so, think my stuff, some of my stuff proved that. Yeah. When, uh, when did you start thinking seriously about this? You made a transition uh, after SNL, and ultimately yeah. you, you mentioned Air America. Yeah. Uh, and I want to ask you about that. But, but when did you start thinking that you're going to make this turn? Because it's a pretty significant departure. Yeah, you know, uh, Paul Wellstone uh, was my friend, and I really admired him. And late, late senator from, from Minnesota, Minnesota, and he died in a plane crash about two weeks, less, less than two weeks before uh, the election in, in 2002. And, um, you know, uh, those of us from Minnesota who loved him really wanted to get that seat back. And um, there was... Uh, uh, I felt Norm Coleman wasn't doing a good job. 
Here's the Republican. Walter Mondale, a former vice president, stepped in as the Yeah, and there was the memorial, for, and I yeah. wrote about the memorial in Lies and Lying Liars mm-hmm. and about how uh, what happened at the memorial was completely taken out of context. And But in any case, it, it, the, uh, Norm Coleman won the seat, and then you challenged him. And so did you? were you thinking then after that election, you know, I might come back and take a shot it at It was this? pretty soon after that. Mm-hmm. And I saw that... Uh, Coleman was got the permanent subcommittee on investigations, which is the old Truman committee, um, which is a plum post. It's the only only member of the Senate has sole subpoena power, and so he can investigate anything. And Truman, and that's why Truman be, was chosen right. to be vice president uh, by Roosevelt because went after the war profiteers. Yeah, and he went after that during before the war, and then during it, and then until he was uh, not, you know, nominated. And he, uh, you know, if you read McCullough's book mm-hmm. about Truman, that's a huge part of it. And he uh, drove around the country before the war uh, to see the training where they were training guys, and looked at the waste and fraud and abuse that was happening there and did that all during the war. And they had, that committee had something like 400 hearings um, on the waste, fraud, and abuse in World War II by contractors. Uh, Coleman had none. Mm-hmm. Zero. And that, and I, starting in 2000, I, starting in 1999, I started doing USO tours. And, uh, you know, I had not served in, in the military. And when I came, became of age, uh, it was during Vietnam, and I got a 2S deferment. And uh, because the government, in its wisdom, the federal government felt Student that it was, deferment. yeah, they felt it was more important for me to pursue my education so that I could Because uh, they probably thought you were gonna become a scientist and beat the Russians, and then you- No, would, no, uh, for national security reasons, they thought it was very important to have comedians. <laughs> and so, and it paid off because I went on the yeah, USO, USO tours. Tour, yeah. And so, I was going uh, to Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, t- uh, I went in 2003, 2004, five, and six. And I saw what was uh, part of what was going on was that the reconstruction was so corrupt, and the contractors were just stealing and not doing what they're supposed to, and there was no oversight. And Which Coleman presumably could have provided. He, he should, should have, have provided. Should have provided. Yeah, it was yeah. his job to provi- uh, provide, and that's, that's what you get as, as chairman of that committee. So I really, for a number of reasons, um, you know, said to Franny, we, we, we be, just became empty nesters, and I had the radio show in New York, but then I said, let's go to Minnesota, let's go there and explore whether this is the right thing, whether I like, you know, campaigning. I'd campaigned for and done fundraisers for Democrats through the years, but I'd never been a candidate. You came and did something for Obama, I think maybe in 2004. Uh, I'm not sure. I think it was five. Yeah. I think it was after. But yeah, maybe it was after that election. And yeah, I remember sitting there thinking, he wasn't very funny, but he sure was good. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. Yeah. I was disappointed about the not being funny thing. Yeah, well, that's I've something had you had to beat back. I've had a lot of that. Do you have to try? <laughs> do you have to try? Do you have to try and keep that under control? Do you have to try not to be funny, to not play to a type? There are times where I just hold my tongue, but I mean, I've internalized the rules pretty well. I think. Mm-hmm. I think. 
Um, My staff is like all nodding. They're yeah, looking at I me. They have tasers in there. I, <laughs> I don't know what that means. But uh, why is it that you, you spent, what, three years on Air America? Yeah. And why is it that liberal talk radio just never has caught on in the way that uh, conservative talk radio was? I know you wrote a book called Rush Limbaugh's a Big Fat Idiot, so I know you've given a lot of thought to this. Well, I think there are, I think that the way Air America was launched was a real problem. And it, we didn't have the money to buy, uh, get on, on good stations, um, you know, with good, with good sound signals and no marketing budget whatsoever. Um, and then you have to think about, you know, what do people want to listen to when they're riding around the radio, who they are, who wants to listen to talk. I, I, um, we had, I had 2 million listeners every week, a distinct different mm -hmm. listeners. Um, that's a radio term I learned. Can you, can you name them? I cannot. I okay. cannot. But we had their list. And it helped <laughs> when I started to run. Uh, and um, so I don't think that this was proof that it doesn't work. That progressive radio doesn't work. I mean, but, I was just wondering if there's something culturally about liberals as opposed to conservatives that. Well, make I think, them you know, I don't think um, you know NPR is progressive or liberal, but I think it's obviously a different kind of radio than the the right wing talk radio, and people listen to it. And I actually wanted Air America when we were started starting. I wanted it to be like. Okay, I want us to be like NPR, but um, uh, progressive. But I wanted like Robert Reich to do uh, like a marketplace, like mm -hmm. an hour marketplace mm -hmm. show every day. That's mm -hmm. what I wanted. I wanted Ray Suarez, who mm -hmm. had been on NPR and, and was then on uh, the News Hour, to be to have a show. Mm -hmm. That's what I wanted to do, and I think we didn't. I, I literally think it was uh, it was partly about money and it was partly about do these guys want to risk the, what they were doing to do that. And uh, as a result, I think we got... Uh, I didn't want to be the mirror image of Rush Limbaugh. I wanted to be the opposite. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. so that was, that was very different. I was very proud of my show and uh, I mixed in a lot of humor, but mainly I was using the show uh, in a way uh, to inform myself. So I, and my listeners, of course, but like I had people like Elizabeth Warren talk about bankruptcy in 2005. I had people like uh, Atul Gawande talk about healthcare. Yeah, yeah. I mean, those are the, if you wrote a good book about uh, Tom That's Ricks was on. right there, yeah. Yeah, well, Atul is unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. I'm seeing him, I think, this week. He's um, coming to D.C., yeah, and um, uh, and you know Tom Ricks, who wrote Fiasco, was on. And was that Parker. part of the uh, process of getting ready to yeah. do this Senate thing? Yeah, yeah, it really was. I, I, and so I was very, it was very steeped in in policy and uh, in in the things that I was really interested in. So. I want to talk a little bit about the left because there's, you know, we just came through a big primary campaign mm -hmm. uh, and um, there's there's this disillusionment out there uh, 
and the sense that um, you know that that pro- uh, progressive goals are compromised here that that you can't you, you smile but I, I really want you to address this because you you are of the left I mean I think you're viewed that way right um, and so uh, and I know in this race you endorsed Hillary Clinton before Bernie Sanders I think even got in yep. the race but what it make the argument to progressives as to I believe this matters obviously I've, I've committed myself to it I run an institute of politics the whole goal being to persuade young people that being in the arena matters make the case for why it matters you made made it you started to earlier on the mental health issue uh where yeah. you were able to have an impact but talk to the frustrated and let me say something talk about to mental your, health is yeah. that's not partisan yeah of you know, course. that's not no, partisan i mean no, mental not, health knows no partisan no and yeah. and i've i have a thing called the uh comprehensive justice mental health act that has to do with law uh you know corrections and law enforcement and stuff like that that's completely bipartisan yeah uh but here look what the reason i smile <laughs> yes is when you said uh, you know that progressive politicians or politics are, are compromised we have a congress where the republicans are in the majority in the house and the majority in the senate so this week we've been doing gun stuff, right? And it's pretty much, you know, skins and shirts, pretty much. And, um, you know, uh, there are a lot of people who, uh, why can't we have free college? Well, when we had the majority, we couldn't get, um, we couldn't get refinancing of student loans. Right. You know, and it, but you're it's, kind of making the case there that that the critics would make, which is that the whole system is incapable of of responding. I mean, I would make a different argument, which is that this is the nature of democracy, and yes, it's coagulated by money. You made a speech on that. Well, recently. I wasn't talking about money just now. I was talking about the way the system works, mm-hmm. and we have you have to sixty votes to do stuff, and now that we're we have 46. I'm glad you need 60. Yeah. And so I think there's a reason for the 60. I think there really is a reason. Uh, you so know, when I was I, in the White House and we had 60, we couldn't do, we couldn't get a public option. I know. The, and I point that out when, you know, my, uh, you know, when progressives who were for Bernie are going like, we got it, you know, single payer. We got a single payer. I go, we're not going to get it. <laughs> no, no, I'm <laughs> because, for it. I mean, I'm for yeah, it. Yeah, I'm but for it too, but yeah. we're not. Right. And also we have the Affordable Care Act. Yes. And maybe if we get a, uh, a majority in the Supreme Court, we might get the decision on Medicaid mm-hmm. that the, uh, the Roberts Court uh, still be the Roberts Court, but that the five-four majority right. said no, you can't expand the, this to Medicaid that way, which I think was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And the, it's the Commerce Clause. We should have been able to do it through the Commerce Clause. And um, you know, this is part of interstate commerce, healthcare now. Right. You know, so um, we need to work on what we have on ACA. And there's also a lot of I'm stuff sure you've been, And I'm sorry to interrupt you on this, but you, you probably, as I do, bump into people all the time whose lives have been in, impacted in a really positive way by the Affordable Care Act. I mean, I have people come up to me all the time who've, who couldn't get insurance, got insurance, their lives were saved, someone, some, their loved one's life yeah. 
was saved. I, you know, wasn't right away. It kicked in for uh, kids, mm-hmm. and you know, it didn't take me long to meet the first mom who said my ki- my daughter's alive because of what you guys did. Yeah, and so, and and I am so frustrated by my Republican colleagues and um, how they just went in in 2009 and just said, we're going to oppose everything this guy does. And McConnell said our number one goal is to have one-term Obama. And they uh, just uh, made it impossible to do anything in a bipartisan way, even stuff that they had supported uh, before, you know, the, the mandate was the Heritage Foundation. Yeah, and so well, actually, you know, uh, when I uh, one of the things that was frustrating to us was that a few months before the president took office, when he was running for president, the market crashed around Lehman Brothers, and the president needed votes to President Bush around the tarp. And uh, nobody liked it. Or, you know, Barney Frank didn't like it. Nancy Pelosi didn't like it. Obama didn't like it. But the market was crashing and right. something had to be done. It was Democrats who provided votes when the House Republicans walked away because they thought this is the you need to obligation. Do, we, we need to do something here. Right. I'm not, you know, so you we, had the, we had the expectation. We had the expectation that when, when he took office and the, well, there was a crisis that and and that the didn't happen. The month he took office, we lost between seven hundred and fifty and eight hundred thousand right. jobs. So we were in, you know, the different. I, I've made this point before that when Roosevelt, when FDR took office, there had been a depression for four years, and people were just ready to go like, do anything, right. whatever you want to do, just do it. Obama comes in. We've been in this meltdown for a couple months. Right. <laughs> and like and instead of saying like, Wow, do we got a problem here, you know, here, whatever you want what do you think and they had the fight over the uh, the level of the stimulus. Uh I mean we you, you and I have talked about it would have been nice to have my vote. Yes. You know, I, I uh, was in uh, I wasn't in the recount. I could have been seated. The recount was finished, I could have been seated. Uh, but Minnesota law says that you have to use you have to all legal means that within the state. So it took to six be, months to get you there. Took an additional six months. Or additional, so like you got there July summer. 7th. Yeah, in uh, summer. No, it was a uh, it was a uh, it was a, a really really difficult time. And you're right. You know, we met in mid December of 2008. Uh, and he got a briefing from his economists, and no one really. The, the I, oh, I said, to, I said, I said to, uh, I said to Christy Romer, who was coming into the Council of Economic Advisors, she she told us what where we were going, like where the economy was going, and I said, you know, here's the problem: America hasn't had the holy shit moment yet. Mm. America doesn't realize. Can you say that on your podcast? We'll find out. Okay. But. Uh, so, um, if you can say it to Christy Romer, you can say it on a of course. Podcast. This is not on the radio. Yes, exactly. That's right. That's the exactly. That's the genius of a. The, it's the genius of podcasts. But uh, but the point was, you're right. There wasn't four years of a run up, and of course Roosevelt had huge Democratic majorities to work with uh, as well. So um, uh, it was um, uh, it was a different. You guys had situation. a tough, tough road but, to hoe. So. 
talk about a few of the things that you've done, and then I want to ask you about this election. Talk about a few of the things that you've done in addition to mental health that that says that say to you, this is worth it. This is worth it. Well, ACA. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, we had 60 votes. We needed to get it done with 60. And then we lost, uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember this. I do. I have a vague recollection of this. <laughs> Scott Brown Some, something won. Something bad happened in Massachusetts. Yeah, and then we had 59, and then we had to uh, figure out what to do there, and that was there was some difference of opinion. And so, But ACA, uh, then the House had to vote for our, our exact uh, bill. And I had a provision in that called the medical loss ratio. Yes. Now, the medical loss ratio... It's sometimes called the 80-20 rule. Yes. What, the medical loss, what the medical loss ratio is the percentage of insurance companies of the premiums they get that they spend on actual health care. They have to spend 80% on health care. Yeah. For, no, for a, no, no less than 80%. Yeah. In, for individual and small group policies, 80%, 85 for large group policies. How, much, and, how and many? But here's the big yeah. the, the part of this. If they don't hit the 80%, they have, they, have the to, money. they have to rebate. How many rebates have, how much in rebates have been offered Billions. since that time? Billions. Yeah, I think it's pretty substantial. Yeah. And also it's just made them uh, more efficient. It's made our insurance companies more efficient. And it's just part of the reason that we've had a, a lower growth in the ho- cost of health care uh, during the last several years since since ACA than we had. That's part, part of the reason uh, than we had in the previous 50 years. Now, I spoke uh, the other night at an event in Dallas, and a, and a woman who's very supportive of the president but owns a small business came up and said, there are adjustments that have to be made because I've yeah. got a small business. I'm, I'm ta- you know, I'm taking hits that— uh, Larger businesses can absorb. I can't. Um, and she said it just would take slight adjustments. But you really can't make adjustments in the ACA, can you? Because the problem is, is that if you open they, up that door, well, no, they just want to repeal and replace. Then what's interesting is if you ask them what they want to replace it with. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear because they'll say things like, "Well, allow insurance companies to uh, go across state lines," and you go like. How does that work? How does an Alabama company, an Alabama insurance company, insure you in Minnesota? Because most of what insurance does is putting a provider network together. Right. So how? how Beyond which there are standards in Minnesota that may not apply in Alabama. Well, there is. Yeah, you don't. But if as long as you're complying with the ACA in terms of what a policy has to provide, that's not necessarily a problem if but they want to get rid of those so there's a, be a race to the bottom what did you say uh what would Stuart smalley have said to I'm not doing Stuart smalley. What, what would he have said to uh, bernie sanders when he returned to the senate he wouldn't i i don't know if you don't know who knows what 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 did you what what did you say <laughs> my my uh my staff is nodding and smiling yeah could you guys step out for a <laughs> here? I, have to, I need to talk to the senator about something. I once, uh, uh, my uh, chief of staff, uh, Casey, uh, at that time, uh, I once just, uh, she was here in D.C. and I was in Minnesota and I was about to do the pride parade. And I said, well, I got the wig and I just got the blue sweater. And she said, what? Well, I'm doing Stuart in the Pride Parade. <laughs> and she just about died. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't now, do Stuart. W- w- the, the more important question is, how is this going to play out now uh, with uh, Senator Sanders, who you've worked closely with mm-hmm. on a lot of stuff? 
and his supporters uh, moving forward. Do you see a coalescence? I do. I think it has to happen. And I think Bernie has said he's going to do everything in his power to see that Trump is defeated. He has a lot of power by virtue of the movement he built. And um, uh, I, and I take him at his word. He's going to do everything in his power. He, he, you know, he has to do this in a way that's going to continue to uh, motivate his his people, but motivate them to make sure that Hillary's elected president. You wouldn't do Stuart Smalley, would you? Do Bernie Sanders? Nope. Okay. All right. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Bring Al Franken back, will you? No, we, we, we actually don't. They don't need to be here. I know not to do it. I've internalized the rules, you see. Um, maybe maybe uh, next time. Okay. What about Trump? Oh, I, I, I don't. Do no, I'm not that. asking you to do oh, Trump. Oh, what about I'm asking him? you what about him. And I uh, think what? he's a flawed candidate. <laughs> I really do. No, no, no. I do. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your earnestness. Yeah, well, he does. You know, I, I, I've looked at him pretty closely, and I don't think he uh, really uh, studies policy. Don't you think he's? But I, yeah, you're smiling. But the, but. Um, Thanks for telling the audience that I was smiling. Well, yeah, I wanted this to be on TV, but they won't let me. So, well, okay, and now I, I have to describe. I have to create word pictures. Yeah. Um, but there are probably. Lots of voters in your state, your state that elected Jesse Ventura yeah. as governor. There are probably a lot of voters in your state to whom he has he has struck a nerve with. He didn't win sure. the caucus. He came state, in but, third, right, right, in Minnesota. Um, well, yeah, he strikes a nerve with a certain with, with some people, and sometimes some of those people will surprise you. Um, but uh, I think that um, I think. He isn't wearing well, and I don't think he made the pivot very well to the general. I hope that continues. You know, I I want him to be defeated. I'm very. He frightens me. He, Why? Well, because uh, I I've looked at the job pretty uh, from somewhat closely, not as closely as you have, but being a member of the Senate, I've I've watched how important the president is. And I've been very reassured that Barack Obama has been the president because he is someone who I find to be uh, very thoughtful, um, very, 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 very uh, smart, and and takes this thing uh, very seriously. And I'm not, I don't think you could say that any of that about Donald Trump. What did you say it about Hillary? Absolutely, yeah. Last thing, you mentioned guns. Uh, you guys went through these series of votes this mm-hmm. week. Democrats voted for the Democratic proposals. Republicans voted yeah, for Yeah, but I mean— They were should, substantive. I, yeah, I understand that. Yeah, they substantive reasons. I understand that. Um, you've got a lot of sportsmen in your state. Sure. What kind of uh, feedback do you get from your state, from those sportsmen? Uh, because there's such fear uh, of the— of the NRA, of the gun lobby, of their political power. Well, and so you know, with the, you have the, a, a state that has a large rural rural yeah, community. Yeah, and and there is a uh, uh, you know a gun um, culture in Minnesota that's based in in family, um, you know, uh, passing down. Uh, we have a lot of hunters who you know I've gone pheasant hunting with. Uh, 
uh, my first time I ever went hunting was when I was running and, and, and Colin Peterson, the, uh, ag chair chairman in the house invited me and I went hunting with him and it was, uh, I hope he stood clear of you while you, were. this was about a year and a half after Cheney shot his friend in the face i was terrified i was like because i went to uh you know a pigeon a clay pigeon range and 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 made sure that i knew what i was doing i i was obsessed with keeping the safety not not taking the safety off until until the pheasant was up in the air if you were do you get do you get do you get a lot of feedback when you vote for background checks would you get what is what what is the sense uh you know i really got some of course um but you know uh there are some people who buy the you guys want to take our guns away which is there's nothing could be further from the truth we don't want to take people's guns away we want to take guns away from people who shouldn't have them or you know, have what about semi-automatic weapons? Should those be legal? I th- think we should get rid of assault weapons. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's just that you see what just what happened in Orlando was, you know, it wouldn't have it wouldn't have been as bad if there hadn't been assault weapons. Mm-hmm. You know, and I don't know if that means if assault weapons, the definition that Diane had on her bill included all semi-automatic weapons, but. Uh, certainly, the what he used was a uh, which know. has been was in San Bernardino as well. Used yeah. in San Bernardino as well. Uh, will can you see the Senate ever moving? I see Susan Collins, Senator Collins has a proposal ever moving on a serious. Uh, well, we proposal. might move on hers. I don't know. The thing about her thing, which is it's kind of a weaker version of of uh, Diane's um, bill to. Uh, you know, make sure that people on the terrorist watch, watch list. list won't get guns. This is but the problem is the no fly list. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, it, it's a smaller group. It's a smaller group, and but the problem is, is if you don't. So what it does is the terrorist then, or the suspected terrorist, if you can't get the gun, you all you're doing, you're inconveniencing the terrorist because then he can just go online and get it anyway. Mm-hmm. Or he can just uh, go to a gun show and get it anyway. So, you know, I'm sorry, terrorists. I've inconvenienced you. Would you, vote, <laughs> would you, would you vote for her? I don't know. i got to see what it is. It's There's not, a sense that, 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 that this is the cynicism of our time, but it's not un, that, that to some degree there's an advantage to Democrats uh, by – uh, not passing anything. Well, no, I, I don't think that's the case. I, I mean, you know, I, I have to see the bill. We talked about it today in, in the caucus, and we don't know exactly what mm-hmm. it is yet. Uh, but, um, you know. But this is what just, drives people nuts about politics, you know, this notion that everybody's thinking about the next election. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm not. Uh, I'm not. Um, I'm thinking about. Can you speak for all your colleagues? No, I mean obviously, if people are up now or thinking about it, and I can I can see certain uh, Republicans who are up in cycle who are just running around on this issue like the chickens with their heads cut off. But um, so I, I you know I, I I understand that, but to me, I mean, just because this just. There's a place now for the terrorists to go if they get turned mm-hmm. down on on this Collins or on Diane's or bill. Or- 
No, what I'm saying, yeah, is gun shows are online. Mm-hmm. And unless we plug that, this is sort of meaningless. But, you know, it's I guess it's better than something. At least it tells, um, you know, the FBI that this person who is suspect is trying to get a gun. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Or maybe it tells the terrorists that they're on the list. It's uh, it's frustrating, though. You you have something like Orlando and just, I mean, Sandy Hook. Sandy Hook was the one that I just... Incomprehensible. I, it was incomprehensible um, that, you know, we're all, all of us who, you know, those children, those, those children, six-year-old children. And that was just, uh, that we couldn't get the background check on that one was ridiculous, I thought. We'll keep fighting. Yep, yep. I will. Good to be with you. Good to be with you. Al Franken, thank you. You bet. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.